would say that I admire the way you've braved the weather, but the weather's perfect. <laughs> the weather just sort of calls out to you, come on outside, how beautiful it is, amen. Well, I praise the Lord for the honor and privilege to be here, for the opportunity to get to know you, to, to see this great church, to get to know your pastor and his family, as well as all of you. You have been a joy and a pleasure so far, and I know it will be that way until the last amen. Unless Jesus comes, then we'll all go home together. Even so come, Lord Jesus. won't really matter where we're leaving from. It'll only matter where we're going to. And I'm grateful tonight for the honor and privilege to stand before you and try with the help of the Holy Spirit to rightly divide the word of truth. Your pastor mentioned the word revival this morning. There is a great need for revival in America tonight. Uh, this nation is sliding down a slippery slope. The only hope is not another politician and not another party, not another election. The only hope is revival. And that revival must be found in the church, in the Lord's bride, in his body. That is the hope for America, a revival, a resurgence of divine truth, both not only in our hearts, but in our steps, our walk, our lives, on the part of the church. And so tonight I want to, I want to contemplate and consider that great subject of revival. There are some hallmark verses like 2 Chronicles 7 and 14. Now, we won't be preaching from there tonight. There are also some hallmark verses about revival, like if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What a national promise that is. Amen that affects not only a people, but a nation. And then, of course, there's the great book of Nehemiah. It's a handbook on revival. You study the book of Nehemiah in the first seven chapters. It is a revival of the work of God, a revival of the work of God. In the last six chapters, it's a revival of the Word of God. And uh, one of my favorite verses in Nehemiah, and the wall was finished. Amen. The wall was finished. I love that book of Nehemiah. But there's another verse I, I want us to contemplate tonight, and it's James chapter 4 and verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. The book of James chapter 4 and verse number 8. Now we'll be preaching tonight from these first 10 verses. But for the sake of time, I won't, uh, I won't read these verses but uh, we will read the heart and the soul of this text, the heartbeat of this text, and that is James chapter 4, verse 8. And the very first phrase, not even the whole first, just the first phrase of that verse. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Let me say that again. These are the words of the Holy Spirit inspired of God to these Jewish believers. 
draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. To appreciate the revival flavor of this text, it is important that we get the bigger picture of this epistle written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, the senior pastor, if you please, of the church in Jerusalem. James writes, verse number one, to the 12 tribes that are scattered. This refers back to that first church there in Jerusalem, and we know that the commission was both to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's where they were to take the gospel. The Great Commission has always been intact. It's always been God's business and our business that we carry the gospel to the four corners of the earth. In the first eight chapters of the book of Jerusalem, of the book of Acts, they had not done that up to that point. We know in chapter 5 in verse number 24 that they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. That's good, but they weren't doing what the Lord told them to do. And so God sent someone by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul comes on the scene, and he begins to persecute the church. And my, that seems like a bad thing, and it is, but we must understand that standing in the shadow somewhere is God in order to initiate his plan. God sends Saul upon the church, and Saul breathes out threatenings. As a matter of fact, even when Saul was converted, he was on his way to Damascus to deliver more papers to persecute more Christians. And of course, we all know the great conversion experience that took place in chapter 9 that ultimately sent Paul to the Gentiles. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. But the matter of principal importance is chapter 8, verse 4. Upon the persecution of Saul of Tarsus, what happened? Those believers in Jerusalem were scattered. As a matter of fact, that's the word that's used in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, that they were scattered and they went everywhere preaching the Lord Jesus. They went everywhere magnifying Christ. And as a result of the persecution of Saul of Tarsus, the church was scattered. And what were they? They were converted Jews. On the day of Pentecost, there were some 52 different nations represented in Jerusalem. They had come out of the upper room, standing on the southern steps of the temple. They began to preach on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he's alive. He's alive. They spoke in the Hebrew language, but by the time it got to the ears of the people who heard it, it was translated into 52 different languages. As a matter of fact, uh, we know they spoke in other tongues. Uh, God gave them the ability to speak in foreign languages on that day in order that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be magnified. And therein we see the manifestation of the gift of tongues. But I wonder what subject Peter, or what language Peter spoke. He spoke and preached the dominant message. The subject was the resurrection. Now I submit to you that we don't just see the gift of tongues on that day, we see the gift of ears. 
The Holy Spirit took that message and translated it where they all could understand it. And as a result, dearly beloved, these Jewish believers upon the persecution of, of Saul of Tarsus, they were scattered and went everywhere preaching the word. And that's the key word, the word scattered, because when James writes here, James writes to the 12 tribes. The converted Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes, he says, which are scattered abroad. We know according to Acts chapter 11 that they went into those Gentile colonies and they began to preach Jesus. The first, the first church that was established was the church at Antioch of Pisidia. And from there, Philippi and Thessalonica and on into Berea and on into Macedonia, the gospel began to spread like wildfire and... At the helm, at the forefront were these Jewish converts. Oh, but something happened. Something went awry. You know, the old song says, prone to wonder, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let me tell you something. If you're right with God tonight, you better give him praise and give him thanks. Because before the sun rises tomorrow, if you don't guard your heart, that can change. Something went awry in the lives of these believers. Dissension began to set in. Carnality began to set in. And thusly, James writes this book. James writes this epistle and addresses these scattered Jewish tribes, these scattered Jewish believers. And in essence, what James is doing is he is calling them back of the Lord, calling them back to devotion, calling them back to intimacy with Christ. I mean, to put it in common everyday language, James is saying, come on back. Come on back to the Lord. Come on back to that place of intimacy with Christ. And I submit to you tonight, dear church, that what that is, is revival. In each chapter, James deals with the evidence of their wandering. James deals with the evidence of their backsliding. In chapter 1, he deals with the subject of hypocrisy. He says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the work. Don't just say amen to it, but walk out this door and live it. Amen. That's what James is saying in chapter 1. In chapter 2, they were practicing class warfare. They were giving credence to the rich and mistreating the poor. And James writes to straighten that out and tell them, Hey, dearly beloved, a, a man's economic status does not merit him one of the chief seats. James deals with that in chapter 2. In chapter 3, James deals with the tongue. James deals with the tendency to backbite and criticize and talk about one another and to divide and to fracture and to separate. Boy, who can forget that hallmark verse in chapter 3 when James says, says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. 
In chapter 4, our chosen text tonight, James deals with carnality. Some of these believers, some of these scattered Jewish believers had allowed the world to set in. They had given the world a place in their hearts. As a matter of fact, they were conceding to the lust of the flesh. And James writes and reminds them that friendship with the world is enmity. In chapter 5, they begin, to, they begin to treat one another in such a way. The, the rich are mistreating the poor. The employers are mistreating the employees. And it's bringing division. It's bringing <coughs> strife to that body. And James deals with that. And it is in this background, it is in this setting that James makes this announcement, this declaration in chapter 4 and verse 8, and that declaration is this, come on back. I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, now I'm coming home. Tonight, dearly beloved, maybe there's somebody here tonight that you're here in your body, but you're not here in your heart. You're just going through the motions. Your Christian life has become very mechanical. You have lost heart in your walk with God and you find yourself just functioning in the power and the energy of the flesh. And maybe what you need to do tonight, maybe what we need to do tonight is recognize where we are and just come on back to Him. Well, I'm glad 1 John 1 and 9 is still in the book that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so from this declaration tonight, dearly beloved, I want to put out, even as James does to these scattered Jewish believers, I want to put out a call back to God. America does need revival tonight, but as Simon Peter said, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and if judgment must begin, let it begin at the house of the Lord. If America is going to have revival tonight and she needs it, it must begin right here in grassroots churches just like this all over our nation. And from this phrase tonight we've read in James chapter Four and verse eight, I want to give you three thoughts that are involved that consist in this matter of coming back to God. In that first phrase, draw nigh to God, I want you to see tonight, first of all, we need to admit our alienation. We need to admit our alienation from God. You know something? No sinner ever got saved that didn't get lost first. Well, you can never get saved. You got to get lost. You, your eyes have to be open. You, you have to see yourself as a lost sinner. And you know something, child of God, for you and I can ever get any help from God in our condition. You and I need to have our eyes open and see that we need help. We need to admit our alienation from God. That same phrase there, draw nigh nigh unto God, also magnifies that if we're going to have revival, we not only need to admit our alienation from God, but we need to assume our obligation to God. 
That is, dearly beloved, we need to rise up and come back to him. Just by virtue of that phrase, draw nigh unto God, it magnifies the fact, dearly beloved, that these people have wandered away. And the truth is tonight, friend, the pastor can't do this for you and I. The church can't do this for you and I. If you and I are to come back to God, dearly beloved, we must take responsibility for ourselves. But then as I said this morning, This is the rest of the story. We not only must admit our alienation from God and assume our obligation to God, but we must accept our restoration from God. You know, I've found down through the years that one of the hardest things in this matter of getting right with God is not for God to forgive us. But one of the most difficult things is for us to forgive ourselves. God has a unique ability that we don't have. He not only forgives sin, he forgets sin. I used to love to hear Vestal Goodman and the Happy Goodman sing that song, What Sins Are You Talking About? I don't remember them anymore from the book of life. They've all been washed out. I don't remember them anymore. And sometimes when we get away from God, it's not hard for God to forgive us, but it's hard for us to forgive ourselves and accept our restoration from God. And so tonight, dearly beloved, with those thoughts intact, let's go back through this text just for a moment and let's examine this matter of drawing nigh to God. Let me say number one, and we've already mentioned that you and I need to admit our alienation from God. What is it that alienates us from God? We don't like to talk about it, but it's a little three-letter word, and that word is sin. My daddy used to say the middle letter in the word sin is I. The middle letter in the word pride is I. We are besieged with I-itis. Our worst problem is not the world out there. and Our worst problem is not the devil. The world hates. The world is the enemy of God. Jesus says that. James says that here. I'm not talking about flesh and blood and man and woman. I'm talking about a world system, a cosmos, a, a world philosophy. And certainly the, the devil is known as the adversary. The Bible, Peter calls him the adversary. But our worst enemy is not the devil and it's not the world. You know what our worst enemy is? You look at him in the mirror every morning if you can stand to look at him very long. If you're anything like me, you take a short look. <laughs> a very short look. But what is it, dearly beloved, that separates us from God. What is it that alienates us from God? I believe Isaiah answered it well in the 58th chapter when he said, Behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened that he cannot save, and neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your It is always, it always has been, is, and always shall be. It is sin that that alienates us from God. And James mentions three different kinds of sin here. Number one, he mentions the sin of uncontrolled passions. And what we mean by that, dearly beloved, is allowing the attitudes and the aptitudes of the flesh to manipulate and control our life. 
Oh, Paul said it well in Galatians chapter 5, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would. If you're saved tonight, there's a great battle that goes on in you every day and it is the flesh and the spirit butting heads, opposing one another, crying out for a control of our lives, dearly beloved. And Paul mentions right here that when you yield to the flesh, when you allow the flesh to do so, it will alienate you from God. Three times in these first three verses, he mentions the word lust. Look what he says. He says very clearly in chapter 4 and verse number 1, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they hence, come they not hence even of your lust? Look at verse number two. You lust and have not. Verse number three. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. What is he saying there? He's saying, dearly beloved, that if you and I are not careful, we don't do like Solomon said in the book of the Proverbs to guard our heart for out of it proceeds the issue of issues of life. This old flesh will begin to manipulate. This old flesh will begin to dominate. This old flesh will begin to dominate and control our minds, our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. And before you know it, dearly beloved, you'll look up and you'll be at a distance from God. Your heart will be cold. You won't be able to pray like you used to pray. You'll lose your hunger and thirst for God and His Word. You'll literally be going through the motions. And I see that in our churches as I travel tonight the sin of uncontrolled passions James says here will alienate you from God but not only the sin of uncontrolled passions but the sin of an unguarded principle look at verse number four he magnifies the fact here that Jesus goes at great lengths to magnify Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You, you know what James is saying here? He's saying the same thing that Jesus said when he said that no man can serve two masters. He'll either love the one and hate the other. He'll hold to the one and let the other go. But he cannot serve two masters. He cannot serve God and mammon. And yet tonight I think one of the struggles that's going on in our churches is not only the sin of uncontrolled passions, falling prey and yielding to the weaknesses of the flesh, but I think one of the things that is drawing us away from God and alienating us from God is trying to live with one foot in Christ and another foot in ourselves. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. And Jesus said that you cannot do that. James is saying here, don't you know that you can't be a friend of both? One will be your friend and one will be your enemy. But friendship with the world is enmity with God. There's a third sin that James mentions here, not only the sin of uncontrolled passions and an unguarded principle, but the sin of unbroken pride. 
I made that statement a while ago. My father used to say the middle letter in the word pride is I. And you know what pride is? Pride is exalting ourselves. Pride is exalting our will, what we want, what I want. Is that not what Satan did when he was cast out of heaven? I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. I will be like God. And you know something, folk, we don't like to admit it, but when we exalt our will against His, that's exactly what we're saying. I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the throne of my heart. I will do as I please. Oh, Lord, help us tonight. Help us tonight. Paul said this, that the weapons of our warfare are mighty. They're not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And listen to this stronghold that Paul was talking about. Bringing into captivity every thought that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. What is he talking about? That tendency on all of our part to exalt our will, our wants, and our desire against God to try to manipulate God's will and cause Him to agree with us. There's only one way to be free. There's only one way to be clean and victorious and that is, Lord, let Thy will be done. And not mine. I want to do thy will, O Lord. I want to do thy will, O Lord. Take me, break me, mold me, and make me. I want to do. Thy will, O Lord, even the Son of God, as he labored in his own heart in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed about what was to come, contemplating that for the only time in all eternity, past, present, and future, God would be separated from God. He said, nevertheless, let thy will be done. James is calling out to these scattered tribes, come on back. Come on back to God. And if that is to happen, you and I must admit our alienation from God. We must admit what the old songwriter said when he said, I've wandered far away from God, but now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, now I'm coming home. Could it be to? Or some of you here tonight, you've lost the joy of the Lord. You've lost the joy of your... David lost the joy of his salvation. And brother, when he repented and came back, you know what he said? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You know what some of us have lost? We've lost the wonder of it all. We've gotten over our salvation and all that Jesus did for us. And the truth is, if our hearts are where they ought to be, we could never get over what Jesus has done. He cries, come on back to God. We must admit our alienation from God. Number two, we must assume our obligation to God. You know, when that prodigal son got to thinking, 
he got to thinking, boy, my father's servants eat better than this. He was eating the same slop that the pigs ate. He was living in the hog pen, and he got to thinking, my father's servants do better than this. And then he said this to himself, I will arise and go to my father's house. There's a little old phrase. I don't know if you use it here in California. We use it in Texas, and it says, you know, it finally dawned on me. It dawned on me. The rising of the sun, the rays of the sun come out of the dawn and we can see for the first of the daylight of the morning. And that's what happened to that prodigal son. It finally dawned on him. You know what I'm praying tonight? That it'll dawn on some of us that we've wandered away from God. It will dawn on some of us that, that in order to get right with him, this is not something that somebody else can do for us. We must rise and go back. But it's going to involve two things. Number one, it's going to involve repentance of sin. You're going to have to get right. God does not sweep sin under the rug. God does not act as though it does not exist and it's not there. Behold, your sins have separated you, Isaiah said, between you and your God. And if you and I are going to go back to the Lord, we're going to have to deal with the sin issue. We're going to have to deal, dearly beloved, with those things that we've permitted and we've allowed into our heart and our lives that have driven a wedge between us and God. And I want you to see from this passage this evening James and how he describes repentance of sin. Look there in verse number 8. Look what he says in verse number 8. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And look what he says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, they're trying to serve two masters. They're trying to go two different directions. James says, cleanse your hands. The hands or a picture of the outer man. The, the heart is the picture of the inner man. David said in the book of Psalms, Who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? Who shall enter into thy holy hill? But he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. I submit to you tonight that this is what repentance is. It is emptiness before God. It, it is being transparent in the presence of the Lord. It is coming to God and saying what David said in the book of Psalms. Search me, O God. Try me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. It is not keeping in reserve any section, any room, any place in your heart. Lord, not only have I sinned, but Lord, if I've allowed sin in that I'm not even aware of and don't even know anything about, open my eyes and let me see and show me. Sometimes sin isn't just in what we do, it's what we don't do. Sin comes both in a negative and a positive direction in our life. But repentance not only involves emptiness before God, but Repentance involves brokenness before God. Boy, I love what he goes on to say in verse number 9. Look what he says. Be afflicted. Mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. If you read Nehemiah chapter 8, he said the same thing to those Jews after the walls were built. 
He said to get your hearts right with God. And that not only involves emptiness and transparency, but brother, it involves brokenness. Often we quote 1 John 1 and 9 and we abuse that word to confess. You know what it means to confess your sin? Number one, it means to agree with God. Lord, you're right. And I'm wrong. Some of us have fonzaritis. You remember Arthur Fonzarelli on Happy Days? What was the one word he could never say? He could never say he was wrong. I mean, he'd get to that word, and instead of being able to say wrong, he'd go, and he'd stop right there. That's where some of us are stopping. We just can't seem to admit we're wrong. We just can't seem to admit that we've sinned. We can't seem to admit that we've wandered away from God. It means to agree with God. Not only does the word confess mean to agree with God, it means to agonize before God. It means to really be sorry for your sin, to be truly sorry for your sin. That's why Solomon said in chapter 28 of the book of Proverbs, Solomon said this, He said, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh it. In other words, they're truly sorry for it. They are broken in their hearts. And I submit to you tonight from this passage that repentance of sin involves emptiness before God and brokenness before God. Let me say third, it involves humbleness before God. Look at verse number 10. Look what he says here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You know what he's saying? Get down. Humble yourself. Conveys the idea of lying prostrate before God. That's what David mentioned in Psalm. He said, I laid me down and slept, and the Lord sustained me. I laid me down. And then right after he said, I laid me down, he said, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Let me tell you, we'll be able to come back to God, dearly beloved, when you and I can humble ourselves and desire that only God be big in our life. Only Christ be magnified. This matter of assuming our obligation involves repentance of sin. Number two, it involves resistance of Satan. Uh, I want you to understand tonight, dearly beloved, that the devil is a formidable foe. Just because you get right with God doesn't mean he's going to pack his toys and go home. As a matter of fact, he's going to come at you harder the next time. You know, after the temptations of Christ early in his ministry, in the mountains of temptation, and he didn't just tempt Jesus with three temptations. The Bible said he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Those three temptations magnify the avenue through which temptation will approach you. John mentioned it when he said this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Did you know that's how Satan came at Jesus? The lust of the flesh turned these stones into bread. The lust of the eyes, look at all these kingdoms. The pride of life, remember who you are. He will not allow your foot to be dashed against a stone. 
And in all three cases, Jesus just simply said, it is written. I want to say to you tonight, folks, that's not change. The victory is in the Word of God and you and I resisting the devil. But before we can resist the devil, we must submit to God. We must realize we are no match for the devil. You and I cannot defeat the devil. There's only one who can, dearly beloved. And Michael the angel magnified that when they disputed over the body of Moses. Michael the angel looked at Satan and said, The Lord rebuked thee. And you and I will win victory in our lives when we magnify Christ and we rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse number nine, I believe it is. Look what he says there. Oh, excuse me, it's verse number seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But I want you to understand, he left Jesus after, those temp- after that 40-day tryst in the mountains of temptation, but he came again. And brother, if he would come at Jesus, don't think for a minute he won't come at you and I. If he would return to Jesus, don't think for a minute he will return. He won't return to you and I. I'm just simply saying when you come back to God, it not only involves repentance of sin and emptying ourselves, being broken for God and humbling our will before God, but understanding that the devil is going to fight you tooth and nail every bit of the way. I want you to know something. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. Old Brother Lester Roloff, my daddy's pastor, used to sing, It's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. Run if you want to, run if you will, but I came here to stay. Keep this in mind now. James is writing to some backslidden Christians. He's writing to some people that have been fractured. They have been scattered. They've lost sight of their purpose. They've lost sight of the reason why God has put them where he has. And some of us have too. And he says, come on back. Come on back to God. Admit your alienation from God. Assume your obligation to God. But then not only did he say draw nigh to God, he said when you do, he's going to meet you there. He's going to be there with open arms. He's going to take you back. I love what he said to the church at Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice, let him open the door, and I will come in and sup with him, and he with me. In other words, it'll be like it used to be. And know this, dearly beloved, when you come back to God, he'll meet you there. It's not God that is moved. It is you and I that moved. And you know where you'll find him? You'll find him right where you left him. That's where he's going to be. And it magnifies this thought, and that is of accepting. We must accept our restoration. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. You say, preacher, how do we know God will take us back? Well, there's three inescapable facts in this text. 
that magnifies the fact that he'll take us back. Number one, we know that he'll take us back because you and I can believe what the scriptures are saying. I like what he says here in verse number five. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain? You know what James is saying there? God doesn't talk just to bump his gums. God doesn't say anything just to hear his voice. God says it and he means it. I know back in the 70s in fundamentalism they had a saying that said God said it. I believe it and that settles it. Let me change that a little bit. God says it and whether you believe it or not, that settles it. It is an inescapable fact. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain? Do you think that God is speaking in vain when he says you come back to me and I'll come back to you? Do you think that God is speaking in vain when he said if you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and take you back in, throw my arms around you and restore you to sweet fellowship. You and I can accept our restoration when we believe what the scriptures are saying. When we receive what the Savior is giving. I love what it says here. Boy, I found myself rejoicing in this so many times. It says in verse number six, but he giveth more grace. This is what he's giving. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. You and I can't earn it. We'll never deserve it. And listen to me. When you got saved, dear friend, God saved you by grace, didn't he? He dispensed his grace in your direction. But there's going to be times where you'll wander away from him. And your heart may grow hard and cold. And when you came back, the same grace that saved you, that same grace will sustain you. Because what you'll find, he says in the text here, that when you need it, he's going to give you more grace. I love that old song Tom Hayes wrote about grace. He wrote some wonderful songs about grace, but it was about dying grace. Grace forever trial, grace forever mile. There'll be new grace when it's my time to go. And don't let the devil lie to you. Don't let him put his foot on your neck. Don't let your own doubts and fears cause you to shy away. You come on back to the throne room. That same God that showed you grace at the cross will reach back into his bountiful supply and he'll show you more grace. We can accept our restoration when we believe what the scriptures are saying, when we receive what the Savior is giving, when we perceive what the Spirit is doing. I know there's some controversy over the interpretation of this text. I know some probably wouldn't even agree with what I'm about to tell you. But I love what he says in verse 5. The Spirit. And notice the word the is capitalized there. There's only one the Spirit and that's the Holy Spirit. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. I believe what he's saying here is this. That God is jealous over us. And when you and I wander away, the reason why we 
have that grieved heart, that grieved spirit that we have is because no matter where you and I wander away, the Spirit of God comes after us and He's calling us back. He's working and dealing in our lives to get our attention and bring us back to that place of sweet fellowship. I want to ask you tonight, are you in fellowship? There's one thing for sure, when you're saved, it'll run you for sin. Sin has pleasure for a season, but after you get saved, my friend, when you wander away from God and get away from God, you can never be happy again. You can never be happy until you're back right with Him, until you're back in that place where you can see His face and hear His voice and feel His presence. The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. God is jealous over us. And when we wander away from Him, He's going to do all that He can do to get our attention and bring us back. And based upon those three things, you and I can better believe it that if we draw nigh to God, He's going to draw nigh. You know, it could be we're here tonight and maybe there's nobody here in need of this. I don't know. I know that possibility exists. I also know it's probably unlikely. I also know that probably more than not, there may be somebody here tonight that you're here and you're in the church and you're teaching Sunday school maybe. You might even be on the praise team. You can even be the pastor. And your heart can be cold. You can lose your song. You can lose your shout. You can lose your drive. You'll find yourself just sort of mechanically going through the motions and not even enjoying the Lord. Friend, I want you to know God never meant for it to be that way. He not only wants you on the journey, but He wants you to enjoy the journey. Maybe that's where you are tonight. Can I issue the same call James does to these 12 tribes? Come on back to God. It's not worth it. Dr. Fred Gage used to say, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Come on back tonight. Because when you do, there's plenty of grace. Had an old-fashioned preacher tell me one time as a young preacher, he said, Mark, make much of grace. Make much of grace. And I found down through the years, grace is so big, we can never comprehend the totality of it all. Come back to God. and He will come back to you. That's the message of the epistle of James. Come on back. And he'll meet you there. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Let's stand to our feet just for a few moments. Dear song leader, whatever the Lord has laid on your heart tonight.